feel like writing a story similar to writing an investment memo, right? And finding a good story. You figure out what's maybe not being reported. You try to dig for information where there's no information. You talk to people in the ecosystem, you talk to CEOs and founders, and then you ultimately put everything together. I think it all goes back into a storyline. I think at the end of the day, when people say that investing is both an art and a science. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Mondays for your weekly tech news debate with Shiyan Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Wednesdays for interviews of regional changemakers covering both the highs and lows of leadership. Fridays for personal diary insights and listener questions and answers. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseville helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, David. Really excited to have you on the show. It's been a great time knowing you for the past few years, and I wanted to have you on. So please enjoy yourself. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of your show. Always listen to get the best insights from Southeast Asia around tech. So glad to be finally on the show myself. So to do a bit of intro myself, my name is David In. I'm originally from Singapore. I'm currently a partner at GSR Ventures. So GSR Ventures is a $4 billion AUM early stage venture fund investing across US, China, Southeast Asia. So my role at GSR mostly focused on investing across Southeast Asia, but also looking at global fintech and web three deals. And before this, maybe this is something that you resonate with me. Basically, I've tried a few different things, took a random walk of life to get to where we are here today. So I started off my career actually as a tech reporter at Forbes. So I was writing about big tech companies such as Tencent and Kakao, writing about some of the smaller, fast growth tech companies as well. Then spent a couple of years in consulting at McKinsey, where I also focus almost exclusively on tech projects, you know, such as building digital banks, helping crypto companies figure out cross-border payments, and so on. And after that transition full-time into tech, was head of strategy at a fintech company that became a unicorn. So it was quite good to see to ride the rocket ship and see how it's like. And finally, I think over the years, similar to you as well, Jeremy, just got very plugged into the ecosystem, started doing some angel investing advisory and realized that being a VC is a pretty fun job to get to meet interesting founders and folks like yourself. So that's what I'm doing now. I love the phrase random walk to career. What does that mean to you? 
Yeah, I think part of it, you know, like growing up in Singapore, we have this Singapore dream, right? It feels like there's a perfect linear path to success. I mean, the holy grail of they go to a nice JC, take a government scholarship, go to Oxbridge or go to some nice Ivy League school, and then you come back and sort of buy your BTO, buy your cars and all that. I think that's kind of what a lot of, at least for myself, right? I was conditioned growing up to think that was the way of life. But I think, yeah, the more random walk of life is just trying out a lot of different things, you know, between journalism, consulting, startups, venture capital. And in between, I also spent some time doing, for example, tech investment banking, public equity, investing, and so on. But I think in taking a more liberal, artsy approach to things, I feel like a lot of these are more connected than we think. So even though they look very random, but as I think Steve Jobs says, looking back, you really connect the dots in certain ways. What are some dots that you've seen connect backwards and see if they make sense looking forward? Yeah, so I think just talk about, say, journalism and what I do as a VC now. I think journalism is very much about two things. One is you're trying to find some of these underreported stories. And the other part is you're trying to talk to folks. You interview folks to find a story. And in many sense, I feel like writing a story is similar to writing an investment memo. Right, and finding a good story. You figure out what's maybe not being reported. You try to dig for information where there's no information. You talk to people in the ecosystem. You talk to CEOs and founders. And then you ultimately put everything together. I think it all goes back into a storyline. I think at the end of the day, when people say that investing is both an art and a science, I think the science part is very clear, right? You got to make sure the usual acronym soup, right? IORs and so on makes sense. But I think the art side of it, I think it's very similar to what I used to do in journalism. I love what you said about the art of journalism, right? And I got to ask, why did you start doing that? What was your motivation to starting out as a journalist? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question, Jeremy. So I would say one of the reasons why I did it was because I started my own media platform when I was back in college at Yale. So this media platform at that time was focusing on US-China relations. And it did pretty well. It went over to, I think, 150 different schools. It was funded by companies such as Blackstone and all that. But at that time, I didn't have any journalism background. So I first started off as part of starting this media platform. I wanted to go work at a large media company. Uh, and Forbes is one of those that I've respected a lot. Obviously, if I had the benefit of hindsight, and if it's today, right, I'll work with Jeremy on your podcast. But back then, I was looking for an established media outlet to learn the ropes of how to create a great media outlet. So thought of going to Forbes. And when I was there, I think the exposure was great. Got so much freedom to just almost write about any stories that I want. Got to talk to interesting folks. So it was a great first job. What was your favorite part actually about that? Because you, know, you spent so many years writing Forbes, you know, for example, Asia Forbes study of the study. A lot of folks are very happy to put that on LinkedIn, <laughs> myself included. What were some favorite parts about it? Yeah, to be very honest, I think the first part is just the access. Remember, even when I was in my first month on the job, I remember interviewing like, uh, I remember at the time, the chairman of EDB, the chairman of the Hong Kong Trade Development Council. I remember going to like events with the head of states. I went to an event with Joe Biden and all that. So I think, first of all, it's just the access as a relatively junior person. I think number two is also the flexibility and the freedom. Because most jobs, when you first start, you are basically at the bottom of the food chain. Um, obviously, in journalism, you still have a boss and an editor who tells you what to do. 
But by and large, you have, it's as creative as it gets. You get to just go read a lot of news. I remember one of the stories I wrote about was about the largest biryani chain in America. And it really just came about because I was walking in Manhattan and I saw this biryani store opening and they claimed that they are like the largest biryani store in America. And I was like, oh my God, this is pretty interesting. And it obviously smelled very good. So I just went in, talked to them and figured out that it was a good story and I wrote about it. Or another story that I think could be, was quite interesting. I wrote a fair bit about Israel and the tech ecosystem there. And, and it really started off because I had some friends from Israel who all were interested in startups. And back then, this was me from Singapore, never heard too much about startups. And I was just wondering, like, Israel and Singapore are very similar size, face a lot of similar geopolitical issues. You know, why are there so many startup founders there? So that took me to Israel, where I just explore stories about its tech ecosystem. So I think having that flexibility to just find interesting stories and ultimately present them to a wider audience, I found that to be very fulfilling. And what's interesting is that from there, you decided to become a management consultant. So what drove that transition from your perspective? Yeah, obviously inspired by you, Jeremy, right? But in all seriousness, I think what I like about journalism is definitely like digging into stories and learning about different industries and so on. But I do miss the problem solving part of things, right? Whenever I find a good story, I guess the example I give is if you see a fire, I don't just want to tell people that, hey, there's a fire there. Right, I want to go put out the fire. I want to make sure that even if the fire happened, let's find a way to rebuild the place. So I think that was a part that was lacking in journalism. So I thought that consulting would allow me to keep learning about many new things, but at the same time, also have that angle where I can solve problems and hopefully make an impact. And from there, you actually decided to go to grad school. So could you share a little bit about your decision to go to grad school? And I mean, not just grad school, right? I did do MBA and MPA. So could you share a little bit more? Yeah. So going to grad school, I think there's a few parts there. One is I definitely, I think a lot of people that I really respect, I think they've gone to business school and they've really recommended the experience to me. And part of me also felt like I was at this stage in my career where I could either just really double down on what I was doing, or I could really go to school to expand the way I think to meet new people, get new ideas, and I think to have a better sense of who I am and what I want to do. I know it, it sounds a little less practical than it should, right? I wasn't there to really find a new job or to do a career pivot. It was more to like, I know it's a bit of a luxury, but to really go find myself and figure out what I really wanted to do. And because I was interested in tech, so Stanford was definitely a place I wanted to spend more time at. I was very fortunate of getting and I really loved my experience there. Going to grad school to find yourself. So what did you find about yourself during that space and time? Yeah, so one interesting thing about Stanford was before I went there, the application prompt for the essay was what matters to you. And then once I got there, I think one of the questions that just floated around in Silicon Valley a lot was what's your superpower? So the way I think about those, and maybe I'm overthinking, is that the first question is a bit about your why. Like what matters to you? What are you passionate about? What do you care about? What's something you want to solve? And I think the second part of the question after you get in is a bit about the how, which is everyone is different. Everyone has, some people are good at building stuff. Some people are good at spotting trends. Some people are good at people management. I think ultimately it's more about finding a superpower that allows you to 
make the most impact, but also probably be, be the most successful. So I think going to Stanford, a lot of it was just figuring out this sort of what matters to me. And also, I think, what are some things that I enjoy doing and I'm relatively good at? Why do you think you had to find yourself at grad school versus somewhere else, right? Some people, you know, go for long walks at work. You know, some people go hiking over the weekend. Other people obviously take a sabbatical, right? Half a year or a year. Some people mm. go to ayahuasca ceremonies in South America. So many yeah. ways to, you know, like find yourself. So just kind of curious because I think that's actually a question that a lot of people ask, right? We're just like, lost. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to grad school and there's a little bit of like a yeah. few logic steps in between, right? Which is like, you want to find yourself too. Is mm-hmm. That's a good place to find yourself or an entry, you know, there's a cost involved with that, right? Then yeah. for this opportunity cost involved with that as well. So I'm just yeah. kind of curious about how you talk through those dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, you're absolutely right. It's definitely a big cost in terms of opportunity cost, in terms of just the time and the money. I had a few particular frameworks that guided me in the final decision. I think the first framework was uh, going to, I was very fortunate, obviously, to go to a very good school. And I thought of it almost like a lottery in terms of if nothing worked out over the next two years, at the very least, I make some good friends. I learn something about business and I explore something new and learn something about myself. But at the same time, there could be a lot of opportunities I didn't know about. You know, maybe I join the next grab, join the next Gojek. Yeah, if I had gone to a place like HBS in the same years as Ladimo and Tim. So I think there was this asymmetric risk reward that first of all formed my decision. I think number two was around regret minimization. So what I thought was, hey, this is something I thought about for a long time. I think I owe it to myself to just give it a try. Whereas I feel like if I didn't give it a shot, at least you know, maybe 50 years, I'll be retired and I'll be thinking, all right, you know, what if I missed out? And then the last part is I tend to opt in whenever a decision is reversible. So the way I thought about grad school was almost, you know, hey, let me check out the school for a few weeks or a few months. If I absolutely hate the experience, um, first of all, I can drop out in the first few weeks, I think, and I don't have to pay a single cent of tuition. Or if I really decide to drop out after a while and I don't think the experience is worthwhile, I can always drop out as well. So I felt that it was a very reversible decision. Again, with, I think, a lot of potential upsides, but very limited downside. So ultimately, that's what I did. Ended up not dropping out, and I had a good time. I mean, I think that's interesting, right? Opt into reversible decisions, right? So obviously, there's some version of like disagree, commit, reversible decisions. In Japanese, also like, okay, you know, those are easier to get into. But I think that works at career slash company level. But I think that's interesting at the personal level. So I'm just curious, what have been the other reversible decisions that you've opted into over the course of your career? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think most of the career moves that I've mentioned to you, in some ways, you can also say that they give you a lot of optionality, right? Not only do they close more doors, they at least leave many doors open, if not open more doors. So I think whether it's, for example, going to consulting, it was definitely quite a low risk move that was pretty reversible. And even leaving consulting was to me actually the perfect reversible move. Like some folks ask me, hey, Mackenzie, you were doing very well. It's a nice, cushy job. Yeah, a lot of freedom. Like when I was there, I was helping to start the startup practice, which was kind of a startup within a big company to work with startups. So I, I overall really enjoyed myself, but I felt that leaving McKinsey was such a reversible move. At the end of the day, if you left in good standing, you sort of always have a job waiting for you. And whatever experiences you get outside of it, you can always position or frame it 
as something that's useful to clients if you ever come back. So when I decided to leave, it was almost a no-brainer. When you say that optionality, right? There's always a big debate, mm-hmm. right? Which is the curse of optionality, right? So the joke is that all the grad school students, all the consultants are all there for optionality and then they never opt into anything as a result, right? I'm curious about what you think about that. You know, is that ever too much optionality or is that you know, too little? Yeah. So I definitely suffer a bit from that in the sense that I've frankly also chased a lot of optionality in my life. And I agree with you. I think at some point you just got to, at least for me, I think you want to hunker down. You just want to focus on one or two things and you just want to keep doing those things. So I think at some point, I guess one example is like, for example, going to more schools. I think going to a place like GSB or HBS, I think it opens a lot of doors, gives you a lot of credibility and so on. But imagine after one of these schools, you go to like law school again, go to medical school. At some point, the marginal utility becomes maybe zero or negative, but you incur a lot of costs. So I think I'm at a stage where I feel like pursuing more optionality, I think doesn't help that much. But earlier, I definitely was opting to just get as much optionality as quickly as possible and as early in life as possible. And what's interesting is that you took that optionality search slash reversible decision dynamic and you decided to join venture capital. And I remember being actually personally surprised actually in some way. I mean, obviously I wasn't surprised in terms of the skill set, but I was actually surprised by the decision in terms of choosing that. So I'm still curious about why venture capital ended up being that dynamic that you wanted to explore after grad school at Harvard and Stanford. Yeah. So one thing which I did was I ran a series of sprints in my life where for every three months, I tested a hypothesis. So initially, my first hypothesis was that I wanted to maybe start my own education tech company. So because of that, I, for example, just talked to so many, or did a couple of projects at tech startups, talked to a lot of ad tech VCs, explored a couple of projects, talked to a lot of friends who were working in education. And then I tried many different things as well. I would say that one of the formative experiences was that I actually tried out public equity for a while. So when I tried out public equity, what I found was that I really like the investing angle of public equity. Like I think there's so much rigor to it. I think it's such a intellectual job. It's almost like playing a game and you want to be rewarded and you get the kickoff being right in a way. But at the same time, I think what I was missing out from doing public equity was Number one, I'm just very passionate about tech. I remember I was covering public equity stocks and I'll still be reading TechCrunch, Tech in Asia, listening to your podcast and all that. So I feel like that's what I do in my free time anyway. So it's a bit weird that I'm not doing something in early stage tech. And I think this, the other part that I realized was that I liked the aspect of a job where I get to work with people and to grow with people. And I think that's something that I didn't really find in public equity. So as I thought about what I wanted to do, what I'm relatively excited by, I thought that venture capital was a good combination of allowing me to do investing in early stage companies, but also allow me to work with many interesting folks. So it's honestly a lifestyle that I enjoy. And that was a good test and experiment, obviously, to join venture capital. What have you noticed are the differences, I guess, from what you expect the venture capital be, to be versus what she turns out to be from your perspective? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think one thing is just, I think I was very surprised at how ambiguous the job is. At the end of the day, I like to say that this, everyone has a different way of alpha. Everyone has a different investing style, right? Some people like the sheer hustlers. Some people like those with very deep technical backgrounds. 
Some people like companies that are growing very quickly. Some people like sort of the undervalued companies, right? They are under the radar, underdog founders. So I think there's, it's very ambiguous what's really sort of the, the right way to do it. And I think at the same time, yeah. it's also very hard to tell if you are really good at the job, right? If you invest in a company, it could go like crazy in the first one, two years and raise a lot of money. And you think that you have a jam in your hands and then you realize, okay, maybe the business model doesn't work or the company. Does or the company maybe outgrows the founder? Or alternatively, I think you've seen cases where the startups, they grow kind of in a very mediocre pace. And then all of a sudden they, they found a killer product and they end up becoming a very successful company. So I think that's the part where it's a bit ambiguous. It's very non-linear. I think that's what's fun as well. I think it would be super boring if you wake up every day knowing exactly what's going to happen. I think number two, what I did not expect about the job is also how surprisingly where deals come from. Like when I first started the job, I wanted to watch HBO Silicon Valley, you know, which I think it's very funny, but doesn't tell you the whole job. But in reality, I think the job is a lot of serendipity. The founders or the startups that you find, some of them might just be something you read about in the news and you're like, wait, this is quite cool. Let me reach out to them. Or it could be you having a chat with someone who works in TikTok shop or Shopee and they tell you, oh my God, this brand is growing like crazy. Or it could be one of your classmates or your classmate's friend who's working on something and need some advice. And as you talk to them, you realize, wait, this is uh, quite a good idea. So I think it's really serendipitous and sometimes unpredictable where the best founders and startups come from. I think the agreement I have is obviously about the speed of the learning curve, right? And I myself was surprised by that, right? Could you share a bit more about what that means and what that means for you? Yeah, so it definitely felt like I was drinking from a fire hose when I first started the job. And I'm sure similar to you, we've drunk, you know, from a lot of different kind of fire hoses before. But I think what makes this job quite hard at the start was just, first of all, the lack of data. Second of all, it's kind of the lack of structure. And third of all, I think you need to have a very high velocity. So you just, for example, I think at the early stage, you just have to meet a lot of companies and talk to a lot of them to even get a sense of what's a good company, who's a good founder, what's a good valuation and all that. So I think that at the initial stage was just trying to benchmark and have an anchor for all these things and not having those to start with, I think makes it hard. I think what also makes it hard is not really having a true role model. I feel like, for example, in consulting, it was relatively easy to be like, all right, I want to be like this partner. So let me just try to, you know, work with them as much as possible, follow what they're doing. And then you sort of just follow the path. Whereas in VC, I think it's a lot harder to be like, all right, I really like this VC and I want to be just like him or her and end up investing like them. I think you just got to find your own Kung Fu in a way. Yeah. And... What do you think are some myths or misconceptions about venture capital as a job? So I read this article that I thought was quite interesting and it had a two by two matrix. So one axis was basically the concentration of jobs that MBAs from top MBAs tend to go to. And then the other axis is the concentration of people in the Forbes 400 list. So basically the ultra wealthy and the rest of us. And what was interesting was that there were certain jobs that were very well represented and their certain jobs are very underrepresented. So by the underrepresented, it means that the fo- a lot of folks, for example, coming out of MBAs want to go into VC. 
But you realize that the people who really make a few money from VC, it's not that many, right? It's ultimately not a job that I think makes you a few money and makes you crazy rich, right? Even the best VCs in the world, they started their own firms and they're the best in the business. You look at the Forbes list, they're worth three or four billion. Again, that's an insane amount of money, but you could make a lot more money doing other stuff as well. So I think first it's just about some people think that us in VC, we're just rolling in cash every day. I think it's, it's a lot more, I think, of the day-to-day, -day, you know, really trying to, in some ways, similar to consulting or even journalism versus what people expect. I think the second misconception is maybe the pace about VC. Definitely during the bull market, things happen very quickly. But the reality is that it takes time for companies to really build, for companies to grow, and for companies to grow across different stages and to eventually exit. So I think that was something that I personally found very surprised by. It wasn't like in the media, every one and a half years, it feels like things are completely different. Sometimes you're tracking a company from day one and maybe 10 years later, they end up exiting. So it's a long journey. Yeah, you know, what well, the joke is like, you know, if you're a VC, you definitely have a nice house, but if the founder makes it, you get to go on the yak. So <laughs> that's just, so the problem of course, the odds are only like one in 40, right? So I think that's the awkward dynamic here. And I think what's interesting here is you kind of mentioned a little bit about FU money versus not FU money. I mean, how did you decide for yourself, right? Because now you venture capital. So you're basically saying, I'm not into the FU, I'm into the non-FU money camp, I guess. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think one is still back to interest. At the end of the day, like I could have stuck around in public equity make pretty good money. I'm not sure if it's a few money, but I feel like if I'm not that excited about what I'm doing, it's really not worth it, right? We're all at the stage in our lives where we want to hopefully be successful at doing something that we're, we like versus just trying to chase this, this thing. And I think what I really felt this way when I was working at a public equity firm, it was a great job, great firm, great people. And I think that the other people doing it was just so much more passionate about it than me. And I think that's when I realized all right, this is not going to cut it for me, right? There's always going to be someone who's, who really loves the job on top of the money. But I think number two, to be fair, venture capital still offers a lot of optionality in terms of we see a lot of good ideas. We see cases where VC sometimes join their portfolio companies at early stage or they go start their own company. So I think those options are still open. So hopefully it doesn't mean that joining VC close the door to FU money. And what's interesting is that obviously you need all these decisions and you also made a decision to work across various borders, various countries. I know a big passion of yours actually has been really like, for example, the US-China geopolitical dynamic. Obviously you're at GSR, which is obviously a very famous China-based venture capital fund that's globally oriented as well. So I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are about the whole dynamic in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think one slightly different perspective I bring as a VC is the more macro lens I have and also some of the public equity exposure I have. So sometimes I almost start thinking from a very high level and it influences some of the micro decisions I make. So to put things into maybe more tangible terms, one thing for sure is that I think Southeast Asia actually benefits a lot from geopolitical issues between US and China. Because at the end of the day, when US, China are not having the best of relationships, they look to Southeast Asia. They want to have more influence there. This is why in the past few years, we've had 
more top officials from both countries visiting the region. We've had a lot of funds, investment funds and all that, pouring money into the region. So I think in a way, the region really benefits from U.S.-China relations not doing so well. In fact, part of the joke is that, first of all, some people say that certain officials in China are almost like the CMOs of Singapore. Right? Whenever they make a policy that's not great for capital or for entrepreneurs, these entrepreneurs and capital end up flocking to Singapore and then going to different parts of Southeast Asia. So in some ways, I think their macro view actually makes on Southeast Asia. And... What's interesting, of course, is that you see this wave, obviously, of Chinese entrepreneurs, like you said, expanding Southeast Asia, relocating. And I think that's maybe very clearly appreciated by folks in some countries. I think especially Singapore, I think it's much more obvious. I think it's less obvious, I think, across West Southeast Asia. I'm seeing a lot of them, mm. actually. And then I think, I think it's very, even more underappreciated, I think, outside Southeast Asia, right? And so I'm just kind of curious about how long you think this trend will continue and what the implications of that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to continue for a while just because I think there are a lot of structural issues why Chinese capital money are going abroad. Right? First of all, the domestic market is relatively developed. The crazy growth years, I think, are over and it's extremely competitive there. And I think number two, a lot of them have been encouraged by some of their overseas adventures. For example, I think Pinduoduo, which went into the U.S. as Timo, I think they're very encouraged by the traction that they saw with both with TikTok and also with Xing, right? Both companies are having most of the teams in, in China and that they managed to crack what's probably the most competitive tech market in the world. So similar for, I think, the rest of the world, including Southeast Asia, I think a lot of these Chinese capital and money are just going to go abroad to look for more growth. At the same time, I agree with you. I think it's not always a good thing or it's not always something that happens without friction. I think part of it maybe sometimes comes from different culture, different working style. I think sometimes it also comes from Chinese founders, both assuming that whatever has worked in China works elsewhere, and sometimes not having the humility to recognize that each market you have to localize. And whatever you knew from China, I think it's a good reference, but it doesn't guarantee you winning playbook. Yeah, I think the humility part is true and for almost every expatriate founder, right? I think when you are more of an immigrant founder, I think you're kind of like, you know, there's a little bit of a, I wouldn't say hierarchy, but a little bit of dynamic where you're like trying to localize into the space, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's much more of that mindset of like I'm trying to integrate or we understand. But I think when you're an expatriate founder, for you feeling like you're coming, sliding mm -hmm. down the scale because it's a less mature technical system, it's maybe a more greenfield vertical in space, then I think that confidence lets you obviously make good decisions. Like you said, be fast, bring capital. I met two Chinese founders and the strategy for building up in Indonesia was bring everybody that used to work from China to Indonesia. That was literally yeah. the entire strategy. And I was very confident. And the, but then, like you said, the guys all switching ahead a little bit, which was like, well, don't you also need Indonesian local talent and beyond just your sales, right? The marketing. Mm -hmm. So what's that plan to integrate, right? And so there's a very kind of like that, I don't know, you say double-edged sword, but I think this, that humility is really key, right? And I think things can blow up pretty fast if you're not humble about your approach as well. Yeah, totally agree with you, Jeremy. And I think other expatriate groups sometimes have learned it the hard way. Like mm. if you look at the Americans or the Japanese in the good old years of their, their multinationals expanding overseas, I think some of them have also tried just bringing entire teams from Tokyo or New York overseas. 
And I think they've also found that it doesn't work in your local teams for so many different reasons. So I think the idea is if you can bring the best from both sides, hopefully you can create better results. Yeah, I think that reminds me, I think the rocket internet did not localize very well, but their talent that has stayed on after five to 10 years have pretty much all localized much more, right? So I think remember, right, the rocket team was like very much like this really, you know, a lot of engineering was done in Europe, not no local engineering in Southeast Asia. So local product teams were screaming for features that didn't really get implemented. Versus today, I think we see, honestly, there's so many Germans and house. Joking recently, my friend was like, wow, the number of Germans I met who are now like building with a local co-founder and they've localized, right? In the sense of like, they're very sensitive about what they know, sensitive about what they don't know, sensitive about what they're good at versus sensitive about what they're being bad at. And then, you know, they often say something stuff like, oh, what I learned from Rocket was I need to understand, you know, mm-hmm. like the humanity side kind of came out and that's not as if it was a script, right? It's like, they just landed the hardware, right? So there's an interesting dynamic there. I think from your perspective, obviously, as you think about geopolitics and everything, I think one thing that I remember debating and discussing, it was like, she was, said something really smart, venture capital. And she said, I think folks are kind of like too optimistic about Southeast Asia in the next 10 years and too pessimistic about Southeast Asia over the next 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. And she's basically, you know, talking about the dynamic of obviously like long-term growth, pace of mm-hmm. growth opportunities versus the time frame needed for venture capital investments, right? And for founders who want venture capital cash, right? To prove mm-hmm. them within 10 years. I'm wondering what you think about that. I'm just trying out there as a, you know. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I myself, I'm very long-term bullish on the region and I want the region to succeed. At the same time, I think uh, there are still a lot of short-term challenges. For example, with infrastructure and infrastructure is both in terms of the hard infrastructure like digital payments, like internet connectivity, like nice roads, EV charging stations and all that. And also on the soft side of things as well, I think outside of Singapore, education level, literacy is still relatively low. So I think a lot of these issues still need to be resolved. And I think since we were both interested in tech and startups, I think a lot of founders in the local ecosystem, I think are relatively new to the game. And this market, with some crazy highs and crazy lows would be a good training for them in terms of how to build a better company the second time around if they do become a serial entrepreneur. And I know I've been a media guy. I think it's always easy to buy into these nice fairy tales of some Harvard dropout who ends up starting a multi-billion dollar company. And it happens. I think the reality is that most founders tend to be somewhat experienced, whether it's having a few years of experience doing their own startups before they start something that truly takes off or they've worked elsewhere where they develop more expertise. So I think even for the local founders, I think a lot of them will really grow from this experience and probably build better and more resilient companies. But for now, it's definitely everyone in the ecosystem is quite new. And therefore, we also see some of of the challenges that come with a fledging a growing ecosystem. And as you think about this fledging ecosystem, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Yeah, so maybe outside of work, one thing which I did after I graduated was I did a backpacking around the world. I was traveling around the world for three months with just a few dollars and my passport. And one particular thing I did, and in hindsight, I was a little dumb, 
uh, I tried to do a land crossing between Jordan and Israel. I just thought, hey, it's a cool idea. I didn't realize there were so many both logistical, but also geopolitical situation. And the funny thing was when I boarded a bus from Israel to Jordan, a bunch of refugees ended up boarding the bus as well. And I was asking them where they're from. And they were telling me that they're from Syria and they're running over from ISIS. This was before ISIS was covered very much in the, in the media. So in hindsight, it was quite a ballsy and brave thing for me to do. But back then I just thought I was young, I wanted to explore the world. I didn't have too much money, so why not try the fun and risky thing. But all in all, it was good fun. I'm here and I'm still alive. And I think you obviously have been profiling many profiles of bravery, right? You did that Forbes. You obviously see that in venture capital for the various founders that you're working with. What are some themes that you've seen personally that resonate with you for this landscape of brave folks? I, first of all, I think most of the brave folks, I think they just have deep conviction in whatever they're doing. And very often they are contrary as well. Before people thought that different business models could work out, everyone thought they were probably crazy or dumb or a combination of both. But I think they just have very deep conviction that they're right and they end up persisting, even though they're quite contrarian. So I think it takes a certain level of being able to be different from others. I think number two is that I think Birds of the same feather flock together. And I think a lot of times you also have brave people coming together. I think that that's also what's important. Like even for venture capital and startup ecosystem, if you just have one, if you have five startups and one VC, I think it's hard for it to take off. But if you have a lot of people in the ecosystem supporting each other, helping each other to make brave decisions, take bold choices and be different from the rest, I think that's how you allow them the system to flourish. And I also enjoy what you're doing with this podcast because I get to hear from a lot of other brave minds and feel like I'm not so crazy after all. Feeling not so crazy after all. I think that's a very interesting phrase. What do you think makes you feel crazy, I guess, in the context of bravery? Well, I would say that growing up in Singapore, again, not living that very traditional, very linear mm -hmm path to success, I feel contrary almost every day, right? I've seen my classmates, they're already having kids, they're already buying their second or third house. I'm like, wait, I'm still on the, not on the same path, right? Not like them. Life is charted out for the next 20 years. So on those days, I do feel like I'm, I'm a little weird, but I think just like I've bounced around between journalism to consulting, to startups, to venture capital, and I can connect the dots looking backwards. I have a certain conviction that whatever I'm doing now will lead me to a place that's fulfilling and impactful. Wow. I think that's a really uh, true point. I think you're right that there's often moments of feeling kind of crazy, right? Versus everybody else in the world. If you had a time machine, right? And you went back 10 years, right? All the way back to 2013. And you saw your 10-year-old younger self, right? Not a VC. Not a grad school student, right? Very much probably your, at the start of your journalism career back then. Uh, mm -hmm. And not even at McKinsey yet as well, right? So what advice would you give yourself back then? So uh, obviously buying Bitcoin, investing in grabs and That's all that. If I could, I would. But I think I would have been more brave, actually. I think, again, looking backwards, most of these decisions ended up being pretty trivial ended up being quite additive. But at that time, it 
I know it sounds weird to quit one job for another job, but at that time, it wasn't an easy choice. But I think if I could tell myself 10 years ago, I would just tell myself to be braver, to take more risks. At, a, at the end of the day, very few things are really life or death and very few things are really irreversible. And at the end of the day, people also don't care enough, I think, about your failures. People just see the times where you succeed and so on. So if you really end up failing, just cut your losses, fail quick and try something else. So I'll definitely ask myself to be braver and to just take more risks and have more faith that everything is going to take me to the right place. Looking ahead 10 years in the future, 203, wow, <laughs> that uh, mm-hmm. seems very far away, but it also sounds like it'll probably be over before we know it, right? What's uh, one hope for man. yourself at that time? I think one hope is I do want to be at the stage where I've, I'm able to make an impact with my whatever I'm doing. But I also really hope that I'm able to help other people in some ways. So beyond just investing in good companies, hopefully I can help other people in the ecosystem become better investors, become better founders, be able to take braver decisions with their lives, be able to be more entrepreneurial with their lives, be able to believe in themselves even if they didn't come from the most privileged backgrounds. So I think being able to also do something beyond myself and help other people succeed, I think that's something that I hope to achieve in the next 10 years. On that note, thank you so much for sharing. I'd love to summarize the three big themes that I got from this conversation. The first, of course, was I really love the phrase, your random walk to Korea from journalism to McKinsey to grad school to PC partner. And obviously, I think some of it is conventional and some of it is actually non-conventional, especially I think you mentioned some of the similarities of journalism to VC, for example, the art of crafting a story, learning about different industries, interviewing business leaders, network success, as well as the differences, right? Looking at IRR return, working, growing founders, and I love the different anecdotes like finding out and writing a great story about the largest biryani chain in the US just by walking into the restaurant from the banner. The second I think I really like was finding yourself a staff in Harvard. And obviously there's a joke about finding yourself a startup, but at Harvard, it's a joke that even lost at Harvard, people kind of resonate with. But also I think there's a lot of truth, right? Because you mentioned about there's time, space, there's brand, there's optionality, and there's space, right? The discovery shared, right? About what to why, what's the superpower, opting into reversible decisions versus because of optionality chase and your career testing sprints. Those are all very interesting. I think, I don't know what, breadcrumbs, I think for folks who are looking to experiment and figure out what you will try to do next and find yourself. Lastly, thanks for sharing about drinking from fire hoses. Definitely, I felt that too. And this conversation, I think got a lot of it. We talked about all kinds of random things from, well, I would say random, but actually very deeply connected on a thematic level. We talked, for example, how Southeast Asia benefits from US and China tension. You talk about how you yourself are surprised about dripping from fire holes and how you cope with it. And we also talk about how like there are ambiguous choices, right? In venture capital, right? As a job, we talk about how there are so many different investing styles. For example, share hustlers versus deep technical founders, undervalued underdog founders versus fast growth companies. And we talk a little bit about the speed of the learning curve and how you're trying to accelerate it, as well as your surprise and openness to serendipity as part of the career. And of course, lastly, sharing about how bravery has been something that you enjoy and also something that you wish you had done more in your earlier part of your career. And also how it always ends up feeling a little bit crazy to be brave. 
So thank you so much, David, for sharing. Thanks so much, Jeremy. It's a pleasure, as always, talking to you. And I look forward to more of your episodes. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.